0: Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm talking to Shanitha Solomon, a teacher, consultant, and doctoral student. We will be talking about her background a bit, of course, but we will spend the bulk of this episode discussing her research into the history of Taft, a small town in eastern Oklahoma. It turns out that her family has a special connection to the town. So let's hear about it. What is your name, and what do you do?
1: My name is Shanitha Solomon. I am a professor of history for SNHU, adjunct professor, and I also do um, consultant work um, for families and organizations, and even researchers. So I'm a, I guess, what you would call a uh, research consultant.
0: Oh that sounds really cool. So we, yeah. we'll probably come back and talk about that in a little bit, but before we before we get to that, um can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background?
1: Yeah, sure. Um I have done my bachelor's at Hampton University um in political science. And I have a Master of Arts in Africana Women's Studies and African and African-American Studies from Clark, Atlanta. And I'm hopefully will be finishing up my Ph.D. this year in Humanities in African and African-American Studies.
0: Oh, that's great. I didn't know you were working on your Ph.D. What's your uh, dissertation going to be on?
1: Well, it's actually going to be on what we'll be talking about today, Um, Taft, Oklahoma, and the accomplishments of the pioneers there that started that town. So I also have about 25 years teaching experience just combined. I started, I believe, teaching uh, undergrad in 2000 and uh, have stuck with it since then. (laughs) So (laughs) great. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's great.
0: And so you uh, you mentioned a minute ago that you work in consulting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you get into that, and what do you do with that position?
1: Okay, well, I got into it, I guess, while I was in graduate school. Um, uh, Different people would ask me, "Can you research this for me? Can you look up these articles and things of that nature?" And since I'm kind of a uh, research addict, um, I think it kind (laughs) of (laughs) stuck. So I, you know, I. Anything that they need, basically, I would, you know, research that if they need articles, you know, scholarly articles or scholarly information, I research that for them. I also do a bit of editing and uh, consulting for people with their thesis and dissertations as well.
0: And so do you, is, do you have like a formal company set up? Is it something that you advertise or is this something Uh, that just is a word of mouth type thing?
1: Yeah, it's a word of mouth right now. I, I don't have anything formal going. I think um, eventually that's probably something I will look into uh, making it more of a formal company. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I can see a lot of potential for that because there's a yeah. lot of people that need <laughs> that need to do research but don't have the time. <laughs> yes. So exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially if you're a research junkie. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned a minute ago that you've been doing some your dissertation research. So let's start talking about that a little bit. So what is okay. your general topic?
1: Okay. Well, my general topic is looking at Taft, Oklahoma, um, and how it um, developed as a black town during the late. Uh, 1890s. Um, the research idea came to me uh, about 25 years ago when I attended a, a funeral, my grandmother's funeral, actually. And the, um, uh, I guess when the families all got together after the funeral, we met in Taft, Oklahoma, which I had not been to since I was probably a toddler. And so um, there was a lot of commemorative uh, souvenirs. In the house, and one of them commemorated, I think, the uh, 100th anniversary of Taft, Oklahoma. And they had some of the pioneers on plates and cups and things of that nature. And uh, one, uh, one family member pointing, pointed out that one of the men in the uh, photographs was my great great grandfather, Felix Driver, who uh, established the town. Hmm. So that got my well brain to tick. And I'm like, well, why hadn't I heard about him? And, you know, why he's, is he not in, in uh, the history of Oklahoma, you know, especially dealing with black townships, black town settlements, especially given that um, Oklahoma had the most black town settlements in America. And a lot of people didn't know that, but he was not written in the history. So that got me. To thinking that maybe I should do a bit of research on him and um, just look at how this town originated and um, the history there. So.
0: So where where is Taft?
1: Uh, Taft is located in uh, eastern Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken. Get that right. Eastern Oklahoma near Muskogee. Um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the Tulsa Race Riots. Yeah, um, that's quite, I was uh, wondering
0: if that was close near to that. Yeah,
1: it is It is close uh, to Tulsa, about a 45-minute about drive, hour drive. So that's, it's, that's what got me interested in the topic.
0: Okay, great. And so, you know, what have you found out so far? Uh, what is kind of what's the general storyline of your uh, project so far?
1: Okay, well... Um, well, what I found, like, as I said before, um, I spent many, many years just literally trying to find Felix W. Driver's name in the history <laughs> of Oklahoma. So I <laughs> I did some traveling back, you know, while I was in grad school and even um, eight years before I came here to Seattle, um, trying to find, you know, who, what exactly is the history there? So what I found um, essentially was a, a little bit next to nothing. And that is because much of the records, uh, the land records, the deeds, and anything was that, that was in Felix Driver's name was destroyed in a fire. Oh. So that was a little bit um, disheartening, especially for us uh, who have to deal with primary documents you know, to establish a record. And so what I did from there uh, was basically kind of look at the family history. Um, Every two to three years, uh, the family would hold a family reunion, and they um, kind of documented some of the history um, of Taft, Oklahoma, and Felix Driver. And so I had to conduct a lot of oral histories. Uh, from family members and even from family uh, members, friends who were also considered family who knew Mm -hmm. Felix, who knew Felix Driver. So essentially, that's what I did for about uh, about four years. I had to uh, conduct those interviews. And so uh, essentially what I learned from them was that Felix Driver was uh, the central pioneer, the initial pioneer of Taft, Oklahoma, And so what happened was that he, I guess he was probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s. He participated in the land rush, one of the final land rushes in Oklahoma, the land rush of 1895. Um, And he was able to acquire land. Now, the question for me was, well, how did he get the money, you know, to get the land? Um, so I had to do some more research on that, and I came across his parents um, by looking at the census records. The census records indicated that his parents were, um, uh, I won't say they were from Arkansas. They actually moved to Arkansas. I want to say it's uh, called Crawford, Crawford County. And his parents actually purchased land there. And it indicates that the father and uh That Felix Driver's father, who was Richard Driver, along with uh, Felix Driver, they were both farmers. So I'm assuming that the money that he acquired was from farming. So he was able to um, um, take the money that he earned from farming in Arkansas and acquire land in um, Oklahoma. And at this time, again, it it didn't have a name or anything like that. uh, later down the line, it was referred to as uh, Twine County, but even prior to that, they were just referred to it as Indian Territory, or more specifically, Creek Indian Territory. So he purchased that land, and apparently, as the Black Exodus was still ongoing in the South, more uh, as African Americans were leaving the South due to sharecropping uh, practices, uh, the peonage system, um, and just cruel cool systems labor. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: This is also kind of the peak mm-hmm. early years of Jim Crow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So as he's uh, acquire, acquiring land and he when he did acquire it, apparently he um, took out adver- ad- advertisements in various black newspapers. And it, it was also by word of mouth that this particular territory would be a kind of promised land for African-Americans to move to, to practice their own economic freedom um, and just live their lives free of white supremacy. So and, and that's what he did. So uh, he ended up um, selling land to people and he also loaned them money to purchase the land. Hmm. <laughs> and so when a family member, talk- yeah, that was it was it was very interesting because you know she referred to him as a loan shark. I don't know if I <laughs> would have called him that because I don't know if he, you know beat people up if they didn't pay him back Um, (laughs) (laughs) because many of the people I spoke with, you know, referred to him as a very good man. He is very upright and always giving. He was really, really giving and very generous. And so that was just uh, an excellent quality that I thought that I was proud of, you know, the fact that he was able to do that. So one of the things that he also did was that he funded several of the building projects Uh, he, and along with two other men, funded building projects in the town to kind of get the town going. They built a grocery store, the post office. Um, They also um, acquired materials for people to build their own homes in Taft. It was not called Taft, though, until I think around 1903. So we're dealing with a few years here, 1895 up to about 1903, um, when the town is going to be, um, I guess, in, uh, 1902, 1903, when the town becomes incorporated.
0: The driver is still around at this point, I assume.
1: There are some family members who still live in Taft. There are a few. Um, at its peak, I think the town had about, ooh, I'm going to say about 250 people in in the early 1900s, and um, it grew to about 400 people. I'm sorry, it grew to about 700 people, um, I think around in the 40s, but it did start to decline a little bit as a result of the Great Depression, so a lot of people started to leave and move to either Tulsa or Oklahoma City, Um, but there are a few people still there today that are still living. But it's, it's kind of, today it's like kind of a, I won't call it a ghost town, but maybe it's more abandoned <laughs> in a sense. And it's very uh, you know rural, of course, um, because it's not a city. It's just kind of a, a, a settlement.
0: When the town incorporated in 1902, 1903, was he, he was still around at that point. So he was still yes, involved he in the was, town.
1: Exactly. He was still alive. I don't believe, I found an obituary. He did not pass away, I believe, until 1950 if I'm not mistaken okay.
0: 1955
1: so you know he was around for a while uh, and they said you know throughout his whole life you know he always had an open hand you know helping people um, do what they are, whatever they needed to do in the town um, one of the other ways just going back to um, how the uh, not only uh, Felix driver but even other community members acquired wealth was that many of them invested in oil in the oil industry. Mm. Uh, in Oklahoma. So that was um, interesting, uh, coupled with the fact that they were still agriculturalists. You know, they grew their their own food, sold their own produce. Um, They would often, um, certain uh, women in particular would take the produce, even as far as Tulsa, to sell it. And um, not just in their own grocery store there in the town, but they would, you know, take it uh, to the next city over to try to Make money for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a uh, an independent economic uh, town. I would say that it, it was. I, I, well, I'll say this: it was kind of codependent because, like I said, they would go to other towns to sell their um, products.
0: Just to kind of recap the story so far: so um, Felix Driver uh, bought the land in the mid 1890s-ish, whenever that land rush was. Uh, started to establish the town. And I'm guessing that he owned all of the land that the town was eventually built on?
1: Yes, this is what I've been told. I have been, um, the first- But the the, records are missing. (laughs) Yeah, the Uh, records indicate otherwise because it was not initially Taft. Even um, Taft is also referred to as Twine Territory. It mm -hmm. wasn't even Twine Territory at the time that my uh, great-great-grandfather acquired the land.
0: So he's setting up the town and the town incorporates in the early 19 aughts, 1902, 1903. And he's obviously, like you said, he's he's, going to be around for the next 50 years, give or take. Um, And so the town is kind of evolving as a rural community. And is it still maintaining kind of that characteristic of being mostly African-American or is it attracting a a more diverse uh, crowd or is it?
1: You mean now or then?
0: Uh, Kind of as it developed in those early years.
1: Okay, in those early years, it was, I'm sorry, specifically an African-American town. And um, that that happens for several reasons. Um, You know, again, as I was saying, um, just in um, other parts of Oklahoma, uh, African-Americans were being targeted by their, you know, because sharecropping was also practiced in Oklahoma too. So many of those African-Americans um, fled to Black towns as a means of uh, to secure economic protection and also just uh, protection in general because their lives were being threatened uh, during those times. Were, the, the, those times were very much so uh, intense, I would say, for uh, many African-Americans. So many of the Black enclaves and Black townships were, all-Black towns. Um, You did have um, a town called Redbird, I think, which is also near Tulsa. I think that they did have a few Native Americans and a few Whites that lived in those towns, but uh, towns like Taft and Boley, which is another prominent Black town in Oklahoma, um, were all-Black townships. Yeah.
0: And when they were developing these towns, you you may or may not have come across this, so I'm just kind of wondering here. In since this is kind of hostile territory, being close close to Texas, close to you know Arkansas, the other Southern Jim Crow states, did they enact any kind of security precautions or anything to kind of protect from, like you said, from I mean, from basically from outside invasion? I guess is what I'm kind of getting at.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, so uh, Taft, Oklahoma, um, in Taft, there was, a and I'm trying to find my quote there, but I do know that they. Um, instituted a militia mm, okay. to, um, uh, and they would kind of guard the community at night. And this was because uh, both the Klan and certain uh, Native American groups were um, initiating violence in the mm. various towns. And this was because uh, of the simple fact that the federal government had taken away much of the land that the African Americans were now able to purchase.
0: This was supposed to be Indian territory, and then, yeah.
1: Yeah, so they were quite um, upset about that, and then, uh, um, so that's one of the reasons, of course, I'm sure why TAF, along with other, some of the Black Township uh, members, instituted militias to guard the uh, towns.
0: On the one hand, you've got the exodus of African Americans leaving the South, but there are some that stay behind, and so I've, I've often kind of wondered about the security precautions that those folks put in place because I can imagine that must have felt very dangerous to be surrounded by, you know, outright white supremacists. And then also just kind of the general environment of, of Jim Crow, where maybe, some, may, maybe all the white people aren't white supremacists, but they're all raised to believe in the separation of the races and all of that. So I imagine it must have been a very difficult situation to be in.
1: Oh, absolutely. It was, in fact, the first uh, mayor, um, first female mayor, I'm sorry, of the town, Leela Davis, uh, indicated in her interview that the Klan never rode in Taft. Hmm. They were never able to infiltrate Taft because of the militia (laughs) that, uh, you know, my great-grandfather and the other men of the community enacted in the town. So I thought that was quite interesting, because even when I look at the history, I did not see any um, (laughs) records of racial violence um, perpetuated on the town, so.
0: Yeah, and I guess that kind of brings us to, like we were discussing earlier, like the Tulsa race riots and all of that, and so with all of that violence happening around them, nothing, it sounds like Taft kind of survived all of that relatively unscathed then?
1: Yeah, that's what I am thinking, because like I said, I didn't see anything that indicated any racial violence. And in fact, I do know that uh, many of the business members decided to kind of not go into TAF because I believe, like I said, many of them did business with some of the um, business people in Tulsa. So they decided not to kind of cut that off for a while due to the race riots. Um, because they were, you know, their neighbors right across the uh, Arkansas River, you know. So um, they decided not to to kind of do away with that for a while to, until uh, tensions kind of went away.
0: <laughs> okay. And so the town is developing, you know, relatively slowly. It's a small rural community, so it's not booming by any means, but it's growing and it seems to be stable and secure, I imagine it sounds, is the impression I'm getting here. And so that and so we're uh, basically, did you see kind of a general kind of growth of the town up until, like you said, the Great Depression when things started to fo- kind of fall apart a little bit?
1: Yes, it, it was. We do see um, economic growth um, in the town. And like I said, one of the primary. Um, uh, I guess pillars of economics there was, um, agriculture. And then, you know, the oil industry, um, many of them invested in that, which was, which was pretty cool. I would say at that time, um, for African-Americans to even be a part of that particular industry and especially in Oklahoma at the time. Um, but yes, we do see economic boom in, uh, in Taft, um, as well as other, um, towns at the time, like Boley, um, um, and that was a place where even uh, Booker T. Washington visited on a couple of occasions just to um, give his support. And um, in fact, many of the black towns in Oklahoma kind of instituted the economic principles of Booker T. Washington, which I found interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, especially, you know, at that time you had this debate uh, between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, but you had these Black towns in Oklahoma kind of um, following uh, Booker T. Washington and not W.E.B. Du Bois at the time. So,
0: That is interesting. I wonder, could it be because the South is in that, maybe that area was just generally more conservative in general? Do you think maybe that rubbed off on the Black community also? Or do you think something else was at play?
1: Yeah, I think that that was an important point that, you know, we are dealing with um, Southern communities who made their means through agriculture. So, um, I'm, I'm, and, you know, many of the families who had children um, did not send their children off to college. Many of them, you know, kind of stayed there, you know, and worked the land. So I think that that w- is probably an excellent point to bring up.
0: Yeah, because these aren't the types of folks that are going to take up arms and go storm the <laughs> storm the barricades and all of that. So. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and I will say, though, just uh, and this isn't Taft, but Langston, Oklahoma, which is another black settlement um, that um, was popping up at around the same time, did establish uh, uh, Langston University. Um, so that was a place I thought, I think, which is an agricultural institution as well. Um, you know, they were able to send their children there to learn instead of sending them so far away, yeah, to learn. So that became an important community center um, in Oklahoma at the time.
0: Was that one of the uh, H- HBCUs?
1: It is, yes, okay. it was. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And so the general curriculum there, you may not have looked into it all that much, but is it, is, is that kind of a Booker T. Washington-type curriculum at that institution at that point?
1: Yes, back then it was, absolutely. Okay. Yes, you're dealing with... Um, agriculture. Um, They did institute uh, mechanics. um, And I want to even say George Washington Carver even visited Langston University and helped out with uh, some of the programs there. Because that's some of the things that he was doing like in the uh, late 20s and 30s. Yeah.
0: And so with that general boom until the depression, um, was this, and again, this kind of reflects my shaky geography of over the Yeah, okay. both, <laughs> yeah. Was this was this hit by the Dust Bowl, or is this a different part of the state?
1: Oh, no, yes. They were absolutely hit by the Dust Bowl. They were hit by the Dust Bowl. In fact, I, I grandparents would talk about it all the time, you know, yeah. how the Dust Bowl just basically kind of ruined everything, and people really had to pull whatever resources they had to survive after that because Mm -hmm. you know when you have a dust bowl that that you know crops just go bad you know um and i want to even say even some of the bull weevils uh came you know that were in the south i think they had a a situation like that too uh that happened so that kind of had a a dead road for a while. <laughs> yeah, I can and imagine. I can, yeah, uh, economically speaking. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that. I mean that was such a huge kind of one-two punch for a lot of communities in that area. Was that I mean the dust bowl crops start to die and then the bugs come in and finish them all off. And um, you know we don't need to go full grapes of wrath or anything, but it's definitely kind of a, it's a, definitely a traumatic experience for the entire community. And so you mentioned that a bunch of people left. Uh, do you have any sense of how many people left? I mean, what was what were kind of the, the, the immediate effects, maybe even the long-term effects of those twin disasters on the community?
1: I'm going to say by at least like the late 60s, um, I'm sorry, late 50s, early 1960s, um, you're going to have a population of about not even 400 people. So you see the kind of, um, you know, so we're really looking at a time period, I guess, of like late. 1890s up till about before the Depression hits, really, in terms of its economic vitality. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And
0: I think you had said earlier that it reached a population of maybe seven, eight, 700-ish uh, before it yeah. came apart.
1: Yeah, so yeah, if, like about 1940, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and so if we're getting to the 50s and 60s and we're down to 400, then we're talking, yeah, almost half of the population declined.
1: Yeah. And we see this um, with the exception of Bowley, we see this um, kind of across the board in black town settlements in Oklahoma that people are kind of, you know, leaving, especially the younger generation. You know, they're not they don't want to stay in what we would term it uh, the country anymore. So they're moving Mm to uh, Oklahoma City, St. Louis, uh, Texas, because it's and even Tulsa, because it's more urban, you know, (laughs) than uh, many of these places, which are more rural.
0: Yeah, I'm in Ohio now, and we we moved here about 15 years ago, and so I didn't grow up grow up here. But I've but that's kind of an issue happening here also. Is that Ohio had a whole lot of rural small towns scattered across the state, and ever since the you know the tracing it all the way back to the um, deindustrialization of the late you know, the progressive era and the Gilded Age and all that. I mean, this, there's been kind of this long, slow decline of rural communities here in Ohio and to the point now where there's, in some places of the state, it feels like almost a crisis that everyone's, that, yeah, all the young people are leaving. It's leaving behind just the old timers who are going to become greater, um, how do you phrase it, you know, greater cost to the community to take care of those people. And so, yeah, we're, we're kind of seeing how that, is in the long term is going to be kind of a demographic problem, and so I imagine the similar things are happening around that area too.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, like you said, it, it kind of happens across the board.
0: <laughs> yeah, so what is uh, so, so, how would you characterize Taft since uh, you know, in, in recent decades? It sounds like it's a it's shrunk probably yeah. because of the smaller, smaller population, but what, what how would you characterize it now?
1: Um, it's, um, a very, very small community. Uh, many of the, um, there are virtually no stores there. None of the stores that were there during, of course, a hundred years ago are there anymore. It's basically a place, I think, just where people just kind of live. It really doesn't have the economic vitality, like I said, that it used to. I mean, it's, it, I would say that, um, it's a place where you can just go and kind of witness, a little bit what what happened you know um, I don't, I don't want to refer to it really as a ghost town. <laughs> like some historians do, they say, oh, it's a ghost town now, but I don't want to say that because it's, um, because again, you know, this place has, is on the national registry <laughs> for, uh, so I don't want to, uh, term it that, but it's, um, you know, a place that we can look at and say, you know, it's something really great happened here. I mean, you see a place where, you know, some of the churches are still there. Um, they now have a community center, um, I think one of the not so positive things is that the prison is there, which is um, on my grandfather's land, a major piece of the land that he owned, (laughs) acreage. Um, So um, it used to be a um, center for uh, orphaned and blind children, and now they've turned it into a prison. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of not so positive, but it's basically kind of a... uh, empty space in a, in a sense. I do have a few relatives that still live there and, um, you know, they're there, they'll never leave. Um, it's mostly basically kind of vacant a, a bit.
0: Yeah. All right. And so, um, are there any other components of your research, uh, into it that we haven't, that we haven't covered at this point? Is there anything, any stories that we've missed or anything?
1: Well, I would. I do. One of it being that my background does uh, focus on women. I would like to focus a, a bit on the roles that the women played in developing the town, um, just a little bit. Um, I can remember interviewing a relative, and I when I asked the question, I said, "Well, what role did women play?" in uh, the development of the town. And he said, well, a little bit of nothing. And I just know that that's not true. That couldn't yeah, be That true. doesn't seem likely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that doesn't seem likely. So um, doing a bit more uh, research into the area, you know, of course, women uh, did the bulk of the farming. They did a lot of the farming, the day-to-day uh, uh, development of the, of the uh, food production you know, the women were responsible for that. Uh, women were also resp- uh, responsible for uh, the schools that were developed. I believe they had two schools in the uh, town. So the women were the ones who um, came up with the funding uh, to keep the school going. And so um, I also found out that um, usually uh, young men and young women who are of school age, they would be taught separately separately. So I thought that was interesting. There was a school, and I'm using the term that they used back then, the school for colored girls, or Negro girls, I'm sorry. And um, at this school, the girls would learn how to sew, they learned how to cook, of course, um, any of any and every domestic duty, I would think. Um, but but some of the other things that they did, I, I found interesting was science. They did a lot of sciencing in these schools um, for both women and men, young men. They taught them science and mathematics. So I thought that was um, pretty interesting um, as well. So those are um, primarily the, the roles that women played. I mean, they were um, bookkeepers. Um, I think even two women owned a grocery store and the other one owned a, um, what do you call it, a, a tailoring business, I guess, where she made clothes. So, so um, a few of the women there were also entrepreneurs. So I wanted to kind of uh, shed some light on that as well.
0: Yeah. And so for this project, uh, you mentioned that a lot of this is oral history and that a lot of the property records were destroyed. Um, what other types of sources are you using to uh, build the story?
1: Okay, so um, at the on the um, when I'm looking at it in the context of it all when I'm looking at um, the Black Exodus um, uh, and then leading up to the history on TAF I'm I am using some uh, good secondary sources I'm looking at Quinter Taylor's work on um, the Black frontier. I'm looking at William Katz and Moselle Hills they are prominent historians and in this, on this particular topic. So um, primary sources though, have kind of been a little bit interesting. I was able to find some diaries. There was um, uh, Leela Davis, um, the mayor who I spoke with, she had some diaries of her grandmother um, and great grandmother as well. Um, in looking at some of the schools that the women developed, so I thought that was interesting, so I, that was one of the source primary sources that I was able to use. I also looked uh, did some research looking at newspapers from the time area from the time era. so that was pretty much it. and then of course, the oral interviews, just to see how I can um, hold the interviews up to some of those sources, so
0: yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, yeah, those those sound like really useful sources. Um, yeah, and then, like you said, especially since a lot of the land records were destroyed.
1: Um, yeah, that's, that's unfortunate.
0: That's,
1: yeah, it is. It is. Um, uh, and i you know, uh, and what can you do when things yeah. burn in a fire? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it was what the uh, was
0: it the 1890 census that was completely destroyed in a fire? I think it was. Um,
1: yeah, I think so. so. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are
0: unfortunately just large holes in our sources and there's not not a whole lot we can do about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why, you know, I try to be as um Meticulous as possible in my interviews, <laughs> you know, and especially if you know some of the uh, community members have anything to offer me as far as you know photographs, files, diaries. Those are really good because you know reading the handwriting of a diary from 1920 that's just awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: Does anything ever show up in any of like the state archives or anything?
1: Not so far. I haven't, um, the only thing I've been able to find there was, I think, um, an allotment map, I think, from the 19, maybe 20s. Um, they didn't have much either. In fact, they are the ones who told me they don't have a lot of the things because it was destroyed in the
0: fire. because no, of the fire.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, okay. yeah, because of the fire. And even, you know, um, some of the community members do indicate that, that I interviewed say, you know, a lot of the stuff was destroyed in a fire. So, yeah.
0: Was the fire at like uh, like the I don't know the municipal buildings or something?
1: It it was um, where the archives were held. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Yep. I was going to say because I I got really lucky at one point. Um, I was I was looking at a, one of the communities here in Columbus, and I sent a, an email off to the the county auditor's office. Mm. Um, oh. they're, they're the ones that you know formulate tax property tax bills and all that. And I was just saying, hey, do you guys have any maps about of this of of this uh, area, this community? And the guy, some guy there, I think it's like probably like three people work in that office, but you know, one of the guys sent me back an email with like thirty different attachments of every map oh. that they had that had that on it. And so, oh, I, cool! It, I got really lucky. Um, I never expected to get anything from them, <laughs> so it's just. So I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but beyond just kind of the you know it reach out to every department because you never know if something might have been offsite or something, but I don't know that long ago, who knows, but
1: yeah. (laughs) Anyway. That's like a gift. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I I mean, unfortunately I haven't really done anything with it yet, but it's cool to have. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's amazing. Yeah.
0: So, okay. So we've kind of covered the, the storyline. We've covered the types of sources. You have any idea what your yet, what your kind of central, argument or thesis for the dissertation is going to be?
1: Essentially, I'm just saying that Felix Driver, you know, was a founding pioneer and that he was left out of the history. And I wish I could find some of the reasons why he was left out of uh, the written history that we have available. So that's where I'm at now. So, you know, that's pretty much my main purpose is just kind of explore, you know, his his contributions to the town and look at the town's development from about, um, 1890, um, to about 1940.
0: Yeah. And I think realistically with a situation like that, where no one's written on the guy before, it's not like you have to respond to some literature or something. So you're, it's kind of a blank slate for you. So that's kind of cool. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what I'm trying to do there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, do we, are there any, uh, do you have any last thoughts on uh, Taft, Oklahoma, before we move on to our recommendations?
1: You know, uh, history of this kind, you know, uh, is it's, it's very important because a lot of times when we look at um, Black town settlements, a lot of historians want to kind of categorize these towns as promised lands are places that these African-Americans escaped to. And I don't really want to give it that approach or give it those terms because, um, you know, again, these people just wanted to live their lives, you know, like anyone else. So, I mean, even though, uh, you know, certain horrible histories were, were ongoing at the time, you know, where African-Americans did flee from the South, you know, even as late as, um 1940, you know, I don't want to kind of put um, those types of terms on this, uh, on this work.
0: And that's an interesting point, because we don't want to, we as historians, we don't want to try to present the idea that every person throughout history has had some intimate involvement with these broader historical themes and all of that, because the vast majority of, of people throughout history have just wanted to live their lives. And so even if you've got people that were living at the same time as other dramatic moments, we don't necessarily need to kind of dragoon them into a larger storyline with which they probably never identified. And so I think that's it's interesting to just look at it as, you know, you've got this town in Oklahoma. It, uh, it was stable. It was secure. It existed. The people were generally... I'm assuming generally prosperous, maybe not wealthy, but at least surviving probably in better conditions than they would have if they had remained in a different area of the South. So yeah, I think, you know, at some point you can say that, you know what, that's good enough.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. So you don't need yeah. to
0: necessarily worry about um, the Tulsa race riots and all that, because that's interesting context, but it's not playing out there. So it's interesting. And I also totally support the idea of, of focus of kind of building up the history of a small town like that, because that's the stuff that it's hard for, I mean, that's the starting point for developing trends of, of kind of how people were living in Eastern Oklahoma, especially black people in Eastern Oklahoma. You're not going to know what, what life was like, unless you look at the local on the ground type communities. So your type of work is really the, the, the stepping stone that may, may lead to much bigger, grander theses or something but for now you're doing it i think you're doing a good service by putting together just the history of this of this one small place that can doesn't you don't necessarily have to prove that it fits with some grander scheme of things but this is the way life was at this one place at this one time that's 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 admirable
1: well thank you so much
0: (laughs) okay well did you have anything you'd like to recommend for us today
1: Okay, well, um, yeah, books. So one of the uh, books that I'm reading, I'm not done with it yet, but I am reading The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. It's by uh, Dana Ramey Berry. And she's a um, uh, an associate professor of history at the University of Texas in Austin. And the book particularly looks at how Black women... Well, it looks at, at how their bodies were was were used um, during enslavement, and um, it looks at how different medical uh, practices were uh, forced upon them, such mm-hmm. um, and how they were. And I don't like to use the word instrumental, but they were used in are um, experimented on to um, enhance the study of gynecology. So that's what. Um, I'm looking at now and it's it's very, um, so interesting piece of work when we look at, um, how black women's bodies were exploited, um, during this time. And it also talks about how, um, many, um, insurance companies, um, are the slave masters or whatever, um, insured, uh, the women, um, because they were used in these, this type of, uh, experimentation
0: oh that sounds really interesting yeah so i'll put a uh, i'll post a link to that in the episode notes once this episode once this um episode goes live so yeah that sounds like a really interesting and probably fairly heart-wrenching work
1: yeah and she focuses on men too i don't want to leave men out but she uh, focuses on both you know um women and men how the um and that's something I think we don't normally look at um, when we talk about slavery, um, you know how the bodies were used for various reasons.
0: yeah, we hear about things like you know the the, the quackery like phrenology and all of that, which were used to kind of justify justify enslavement and justify. Uh, segregation because you know the the heads were shaped in a way that demonstrates they were inferior or some people were superior others were inferior and so all of that yeah so it, but but yeah it's interesting to hear that there was actually like experimentation to kind of further a- anatomical research and gynecological research and all of that using the using these unwilling participants that's interesting to know and heartbreaking to hear about and ugh.
1: Yeah. It's pretty heartbreaking. So that's, I'm, I'm going through it, you know, at times I have to put it down, but it's a, it's an excellent read and she uses a lot of um, uh, primary sources in this work.
0: Okay. Well, I'll take a, I'll take a look at that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. um, I'm going to recommend a book uh, by Jamie Goodall, who is She's um, a historian that I actually interviewed for this podcast um, uh, back in November of 2019. Anyway, the topic of our conversation, or one of the things we were talking about, was her research into pirates, and she just is publishing a book on it. It's uh, it's really interesting so far. It's called Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, From the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars uh, by Jamie Goodall, and so it covers... The, I think it starts in the 1630s and it goes all the way up through the, uh, actually the late 19th century because there was still a piracy problem in the Chesapeake up through almost the turn of the 20th century. And so, anyway, it's an interesting book. Um, It's, uh, you know, this episode, I'm recording this episode in February and the episode is probably not going to come out until summertime. So, this may be old news at this point, but the, the book is the the book is almost out, and it's interesting. And I believe in the meantime, I'm actually going to be recording an interview with Jamie Goodall again for the New Books Network, where we're going to talk about talk the book about it in more detail. So, I'll post a link to that also, if and when that happens. And uh, so, I advise everybody to check that out.
1: That sounds awesome. I, I will do that. Yeah, especially my son; he loves uh, pirate history, so I would oh, love yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, that'll be awesome to look at.
0: So, anyway, uh, that said, thank you for uh, joining me today, Sunitha.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Rob. I really enjoyed talking with you. And thank you for listening today. This
0: episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Shanitha Solomon, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other.